0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. We are avoiding all semblance of rank punditry today, or maybe we're actually doing retroactive punditry. Um, we'll see. I've been teasing for a very long time that I wanted to do a podcast on Woodrow Wilson, history's greatest monster, and we're going to get to Woodrow Wilson in a little bit, but we're also going to cover some other history stuff and. Uh, we have in the studio today one of my legitimately favorite historians, David pietrusha Pe- Say it. Say it for me. Pietrusha. Pietrusha. Well, I'm going to call David from now on because it turns out I have been mispronouncing David's last name in my head and on this podcast. But everyone else has. So, yeah, okay. Well, uh, I'm in good company. It's a majority opinion. <laughs> you know, as they say in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance... When, Print the legend. Yeah. <laughs> Print the mispronunciation. Pronun- it, it took me
1: a while to figure out that for the longest time, I think forever, my mother was mispronouncing the name. Really? Yeah. She was making it a hard
0: Z at the end for some reason. Huh. That's like, you know, Dick Cheney up until like halfway into the Bush years. It was then that he revealed, like on Meet the Press, that it was actually pronounced Cheney. Ah. And in Wyoming, everybody called it, says Cheney, but everywhere else they say Cheney. And it's like at some point it's just Cheney, but
1: anyway. There's a, there's a thing at the county line where I'm from where if you're from Montgomery County, it's Greco. And then above that, it's Greco. And there there's another
0: pronunciation like that where it's just changed, you know, within miles of each other. See, I, I l- that is the textbook definition of a shibboleth, right? It's a pronunciation that gives away who you really are. Yeah. Um. And so if you're a Greco, you're from that part of town. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's interesting. All right. So uh, for those who are not familiar with David's work, I'm pronouncing that correctly, right? David. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. I first stumbled on David when he came out with a book called 1920, The Year of Six Presidents. Yes. And one of the things I liked about it, I was working on my first book at the time, or talking a lot about my first book at the time, and... Early 20th century politics are just really confusing. You know, you didn't have the primary system back then. You had lots of smoke-filled rooms. You had all sorts of weird things going on. It was also just your ideological compass kind of doesn't work, looking back back then in the same way that it does in contemporary society. And the 1920 book was this just... I, it's scholarly, but it's not academic, right? It's, no. It's, it's written for normal people to understand what's going on, which is one of the things I liked about it. And it turns out that you actually did not start out in in history stuff. You started out as a baseball guy. Well, I started out as, or Ka- sports. as Casey Stengel said, they asked him how you
1: started out. He says I started out as an infant. <laughs> and I started out as a as a history infant mm-hmm. of of knowing all about the presidents. So I was like this little prodigy kid who, you know, knew all this stuff. And got two degrees in American history and was going to do history. Uh And then real life intervened, and I ended up designing office space for 19 years. Wow. Yeah, um, a lot of it in the trade center. Okay. Then I sort of ran away and joined the circus figuratively, left the civil service to do baseball history professionally, which Uh is one of the few people in the world would do this i mean you might do you know coverage of sports but not baseball history per se and i did that for a few years and that allowed me to drift back in from writing books on baseball to a two books which were transition works for me one a biography of kennesaw mountain landis Uh okay federal judge progressive and baseball commissioner And then a book on Arnold Rothstein, the gambler, right? That one I knew about. Yeah, which was you know the subtitle is you know about fixing the nineteen nineteen World Series, but there's so much more to his story. Uh And I actually wanted to do a book on nineteen twenty New York City in the twenties, and that's why I wrote that book. Uh And then they said, "What do you want to do as an option book?" Uh And I was playing a mental game, which is how many presidents in any given year are competing. And 1920 was the winner with the. That's why it's the year of the six presidents. Right. And you don't get that in other years. 1960, you get three with Kennedy, Johnson, and and uh, and uh, Nixon. And then 1964 with just Johnson. Right. And then 68 is is Nixon and Reagan. Right. So six is remarkable, and then you get all the backstories of that, and there you go. And then like Roy Hobbs. Hmm. You know, I was away from the game for a long time and then came back to what I was trained to do, which was all this presidential history stuff.
0: Well, so it's funny. You know, this is one of the things that has been a peeve of mine for a very long time. And we're going to get to the real stuff, but since we're on this, um, I think it's interesting. Back when there were lots of bookstores, there's still some, but if you went into the history section, first of all, something like 60, 70% of them were military history stuff. Mm-hmm. And... Maybe an equal percentage were written by sort of non-academic historians. and it is sort of just sort of shocking how the academic historian profession or guild has, which is dedicated to the craft of maintaining or popularizing or, or whatever whatever you want to call it, the American or the or the historical narrative. It's just sort of washed its hands of the plebes and doesn't want, you know, consumers reading their stuff. I mean, there are a few, obviously. Yeah. There's so many more academics now to write. Right. Um,
1: and the publishing industry has changed so much where the big royalties force out everybody else. Right. Where you can't make a living doing this unless you've got some other gig. Right, right. And And the other gig is academia, whether it's, you know— Writing badly
0: or not? Well, also, but academia also really seems to emphasize either intellectual fads, lesbian mores, and anti-bellum South, or whatever. You know, I mean, these weird sort of identity politics. You gotta have a hook.
1: (laughs) That's true. And and that and that that actually hurts me, right? Because they say, "Well, what what are you going to come up with in this book?" I said, "I don't know. (laughs) I haven't researched it yet. I'm not done with it." Right. And And I'm not going to start with a premise because then everything has to be force fed into it right. and and that ends up with a certain dishonesty and a certain dullness. Right. I'd rather go hunting around you know and and see what I can see and report back to to my real bosses, the real readers so all right, so let's get let's
0: get to it so and let's save the worst for last, and we'll put, push off Woodrow Wilson for a little bit. Um and if you if you want to make the case about Woodrow Wilson being a swell guy, you should mentally prepare yourself for that, and we we can go at it. But um, in the meantime, when you talk to people about this sort of first third of the twentieth century, which you've written a lot about, what are the things that you would tell the relatively informed student of history, or just c- civilian who's actually interested in this stuff? the things that they don't know? What are the things that they need to know about sort of the progressive era or the 1920s in American politics that are not understood in general today? Well,
1: don't try to find a straight line ideologically between the parties or even between the ideologies because you won't. It's an absolute mess. And now we've got the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage coming up and all that. The majority of votes for that were from Republicans, right? Either in the Congress or in the uh, state houses, and and it's not even close. And the same thing goes on with uh with you know who is supporting civil rights and who is opposed to civil rights, and even within you know what constitutes progressivism. So yes, eugenics or prohibition or anything of that nature, or or supporting. Um, imperialism, Mm -hmm. uh, an aggressive foreign policy. And you see people are split six ways this Sunday on that. Theodore Roosevelt, some uh, people who are supporting him in the progressive ranks are, are, you know, gung-ho, gung-ho warmonger types. And then you've got other people like Hiram Johnson who are ultra, ultra isolationists. Here's a fun fact I found just recently, or I heard recently. Uh, John Milton Cooper, who is the big uh, Wilson biographer, he's he was talking on C-SPAN because oh, that's all we we're only allowed to talk on C-SPAN <laughs> <laughs> and nowhere else. And he's saying, you know, you know who invented America first? The phrase. Now, of course, it was probably Adam. Okay, right. But Woodrow Wilson, 1915. <laughs> Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah, And that's what that's what Cooper claims. But, you know, not all these words have sinister meanings all the right. time. And what he's saying is, you know, we should deal with America first and get all our ducks in order. But then very Wilsonian. And then when the time comes for us to fix the rest of the world, we'll be ready. Right. Because <laughs> there's that Christian messianism in a lot of this stuff. A lot right? of his stuff and, and, and the whole and the whole
0: progressive movement and the whole uh, imperialism or colonialism. Right, so it's one of the examples I often use. It's this great quote I got from the Hofstetter book. Was it the Age of Reform? Because uh, people point out that William Jennings Bryan, right, he he opposed World War One, and it's William Jennings. Right, he was the Secretary of State. Yes, right? yes. He opposed it, and so people say, ah, so he was anti-imperialist. And then there's this great quote where he says, talking about prohibition, and this, he says, prohibition is just the first step on the long crusade. To a saloonless world. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, why not? If it's a good idea here, you had prohibition in other countries. I think very briefly in Canada, uh-huh. Norway had it for a number of years, huh. and in India, I think for a while. When the tide of the future is is going, you think it's you know like it's going to be feminism forever or right. whatever, and it's not.
0: So. So even so, if our ideological categories don't really retroactively apply very well going back, then what are useful ideological components or categories that do help explain things? I mean, social gospel, right? There is this sort of progressive Christian movement that big I mean, people don't. One of the things that people don't remember about progressivism is there was a huge Christian element to it. I mean, absolutely. When, almost you can't re- take if you took Christianity out of progressivism, progressivism falls down, right?
1: When. Theodore Roosevelt is nominated by the Progressive Party in Chicago in 1912, his acolytes—and they really are acolytes, it's a cult of personality at right. that point—are are singing onward Christian soldiers. Right. And so you get a, a, a ton of, of rhetoric like that. Brian is noted as being so religious and fundamentalist and all that but he's he's not alone Woodrow Wilson in his own way a very religious guy um moralist Theodore Roosevelt Theodore Roosevelt is a real social gospel sort of of person he's a church goer but he doesn't seem to be much into doctrine and you take a look at some of his statements on why it's good for people to attend church and quite often he's saying, well, it's good for these, these new immigrants and these newer people to go there because they're going to learn you know, basic so- social skills and how to be a good American, blah, 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 blah. So again, there's that, that social gospel component with him. And so there's, there's sort of the Christianity, social gospel stuff. Franklin Roosevelt, I think, is, is mu- a much more religious person than Theodore I think there's a genuine religiosity about him. Yeah. I mean, look at that DJ, D-Day speech. The D-Day
0: speech is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, and,
1: of course, he knows who he's speaking to. Right. He's speaking to a Christian religious uh, nation. And Nazism is not Christian.
0: Right. Right. Which is news to some people. It really is. <laughs> no, I know. Believe me, I can... I can, I can... Go on. You could read my book, 1932, on that subject. <laughs> <laughs> and, or you could read this book I wrote about fascism,
1: yeah, about how Christian or, or, or one or two or a hundred or, or a thousand books, which if you bother to read, you'll, you'll know that.
0: Right. Well, see, that's one of these interesting things. Do you ever read Rendezvous with Destiny? The I think it's Eric Goldman histo- history. Maybe a million years ago. Yeah. So he, I, th- I, think, I think he was Columbia, might have been Princeton. It's a great... He was sort of an LBJ... Uh, yes, he was liberal, a good guy, but it's so funny he that do a book of the tragedy of Lyndon Johnson. I mm-hmm. think he did. He might have. He yeah, might... yeah, that yeah. sounds right. And but this book, it's because again, I mean, if the early twentieth century is hard, the late nineteenth century is really hard too. My, all, uh, that free silver stuff is a really hard thing for me to get my head around. For you, also very see long.
1: some some bourbon Repu- uh, Democrats, uh-huh. i.e., the conservative, classical liberal uh, Democrats under Cleveland. Being people
0: who are helping to form the original NAACP. Right. Yeah. So, anyway, my my only point about Goldman was that it's so interesting to read liberal historians prior to the age of sort of identity politics and intersectionality. And the story that they tell about the past is so different than the story that we're supposed to be learning today just because they were writing at a different time. And I, I, I find reading old historians... In some ways is more useful than reading contemporary historians are among the academic types because the academic types are bought into a theory of the past. They're picking out little things which
1: were not considered to be all that important then. So they're they're missing the mainstream of events. And the mainstream event in America is, as Calvin Coolidge said, America has been a success.
0: Right. So, okay. so Christianity is one. Another one I would argue would be the role of ethnic politics, right? I mean the so much of the 1950s and 19 well 1930s and 1950s can't really be understood unless you understand this the way the progressives treated for example Germans in Middle America in the 19 they're in the World War 1 in the early 1920s where you had these I mean the almost complete extra ex, ex Boulderization I'm not going to say ex extirp- exportation Extirpation. extirpation of the German language in this country. I mean German books were pulled off shelves. You couldn't teach German German plays weren't allowed. people with german accents were were persecuted. There was you know a handful of things that could be called lynchings of Germans and Groucho marx
1: the gr- classic Groucho Marx character mm-hmm. is very late in his career up until the war. He's a German dialect comedian. He's a Dutch comic. Oh, right, right. Yeah, and he has to stop that.
0: Yeah. And uh, I was reading um, Robert Nisbet recently, and he was talking about how when he was in grade school, there wasn't a single German composer mentioned in their music class until his, like, senior year or something like that when it was just starting to die down. And one of the points that Leo Rubuffo makes is that, you know, there was this Brown Scare stuff that happened in the 1930s about the Germans cooperating with with the Nazis but also in World War 1 where the the Hun, the dangers of the Hun and all that there was a all huge
1: i mean conspiracy there were big conspiracies and spies the stuff of cheap movies right was really going on with the German government and actually even the Austro-Hungarian government where they had to recall the governor or the Ambassador from Austria, because he was going to form, foment strikes in munitions plants, mm-hmm. and the Germans were blowing up you know ships and the Black Tom explosion in, in uh, New Jersey, which damages the Statue of Liberty and shatters windows in Philadelphia uh, uh, subsidizing uh, the german American press as if the british i 'm sure didn 't you know subsidize uh, the the, the pro allied uh, press. Um, so there is there is a reason to be suspicious of the Germans, but of course it goes completely haywire. Right. And Theodore Roosevelt is like hyphenated Americans, hyphenated Americans, hyphenated – and then Wilson catches on to that and makes it into an industry in the federal government. And then all these volunteers that you talk about mm-hmm. who are you know, a quarter million essential vigilantes right. or unofficial government spies going out. To, to nail any semblance of dissent, whether it's uh, isolationist or Germans or Irish or socialists or anarchists, at one point in the cabinet, they're talking about Why don't we go after Theodore Roosevelt? This guy is saying stuff about our level of preparedness. He's criticizing the government. Why don't we arrest him? And the attorney general says, or the postmaster general, one of them, some general says, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I think I will look into that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so that's – so, I mean, this is one of the things that that – it was totally air. Like when I was working on my first book and I, and I was reading about the Wilson era and the American Protective League, which is one of the things you're yeah. we referring to. Yeah, you know, the American Protective League was at its height. It claimed 250,000 members, had 600 chapters across the country. They were duly authorized by the Department of Justice to crack skulls, spy on people, break up. I mean, the Wobblies really got it badly back then. And I'm not saying the Wobblies were great. I'm not a pro Wobbly no, no. guy, but it just. The the extent of the sort of the police state stuff that was done back then was completely airbrushed out of the history that I learned. And you did learn a little bit about the Pomerades. That's it. But that was it was that was almost sort of like just intended as a foreshadowing of yes. McCarthyism and nothing right, else, right? Red scares are bad. Right. But you know, the the stuff that happened under That's generally deportations and it deals with enemy aliens.
1: Uh-huh. And at the same time, what you have is the expulsion of socialists, either from the Congress, Victor Berger in mm-hmm. Milwaukee, or the five socialist members of the uh, New York State Legislature, the Assembly. Mm-hmm. They get they get knocked out. And, of course, Eugene B. V. Debs, the, social, the perennial Socialist Party presidential candidate. Uh, goes to jail in 1917. He's jailed by Wilson. Wilson says, "I will never let that man out." He's right. traitor to the American people. Never, 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 never. And then Warren Harding, the big reactionary, says, uh, "I think it would be good for him to spend Christmas with his family. <laughs> go, go, go from prison,
0: uh, but come to the White House and see me first. Yeah, the Republicans let out a lot of political prisoners. Yes. And all right, so but let's get back to the because I, I don't want to like um. Syphon off too much of my Wilson bashing right now, oh there's plenty I know um, so uh, so religion, sort of ethnic politics, you brought up socialism, which is a serious ideological marker. I spent a lot of time working on um, and here 's another name i 'll mispronounce because half the people I talk to say it 's Richard Ellie, and the other people say I don't it's Richard know. Eli um, yeah, but he was I don't know. sort of the, the the ringleader of the Wisconsin School of Progressives right. And um, a champion of the, you know, he was sort of the highest-ranking economist among the social gospelers and the highest-ranking social gospeler among the economists. <laughs> and the American Economic Association still has a Richard Ellie prize mm. today. And people forget that he's, or just don't care to know, that he was soaked to the bone eugenicist. He was a racist. He was, he was sort of a 100% America, McCarthyite type in all sorts of ways. But... He was also a Christian socialist, and this is one of these other things that is very hard to sort of explain to people today that populism
1: is so Christian that right Ryan is so christian and I, i've I've heard a recording of him where he's defending the virgin birth
0: and he does it fairly well? Yeah, no, I bet. Wait, people he was an articulate he, guy. He kind of won the day in the Scopes trial. You know, what I mean? he, he won the trial. <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, people people only know from the movie, but he actually was pretty good. He won over the jury. Yeah. You know, um, but on the socialism thing, you know, and this is a point Richard Rorty has made. So much damage was done by intellectuals, intellectual leftists in the '30s through the '50s of thinking socialism and Marxism have to be the same thing. And there were lots of American socialists who weren't, first of all, weren't necessarily Marxists, but also weren't necessarily pro-Soviet. Norman Thomas yeah, exactly. was in no way a pro-Soviet guy. And, and even John Dewey, who I have huge problems with, you wouldn't call him a sort of, you know, lickspittle of Stalin or anything like that. I was interviewed a few years ago because I've reached that stage
1: of by some kid where I went to school, talking to the old alumni. <laughs> and... What was it like when you were in college during all the protests? And I was like, "Did you get, you know?" And I said, "Well, you know, you could you could discuss different things. There wasn't a great censorship. I didn't. I mean, I was threatened, you know, occasionally. There was a firebombing of one of the dorms, but we would always talk very and got along very well with the Democratic Socialists, right? Because they were anti-communists, right? And and that was that whole strain of look in New York State." where you're from mm-hmm. you must remember the liberal party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The liberal party was designed to be an anti-communist party right. uh, around 1946 1947 uh after the the commies had taken over some workers party and 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 were you know actually they were running some republicans on that like Vito Marcantonio. Yeah. yeah the American labor party.
0: That's right. Yeah I mean Arthur and Legendre set up what is it um the ADA or the Yes, yeah. the Americans
1: for Democratic Action started out, as, you know, now it's a big liberal group or was at that when I was a kid. I don't know what it does now. But yes, Eleanor Roosevelt and Schlesinger and Hubert Humphrey and they were designed to be the counterweight to the pro-Soviet Henry Wallace people. Right, There was always that strain that that middle ground. And you know, and confusing them with the communists, you know, not not helpful then you take a look at at eugene v debs right when when the communist revolution starts the the statements that he and his comrades, not communist comrades, but Socialist Party comrades, make is like we support Bolshevik revolution. We want the same thing here. And they're not worried about the executions. They say Lenin and Trotsky are not dictators. They don't get it right right away either. Right. And one of the things which really kills the Socialist Party in America is not the Palmer raids. It's not deporting you know a bunch of anarchists back to the old country or anything like that. What really kills it is the creation of the Communist Party Mm -hmm. because a lot of people who had been in the Socialist Party and supplied a lot of the energy leave, Mm -hmm. and that really hurts them. And, of course, the other thing is that people like Woodrow Wilson and the Democratic Party are starting to follow the Socialist platform.
0: So it's like, what's the point? Right, right. So – I'm just, well, all I'm trying to do here is sort of lay out the sort of the points on you know the the points on the compass and the political climate at the beginning of the 20th century that are different from our own. And it seems to me the other important point, and I don't want to belabor a point I make on this podcast all the time, but back then the parties were actually strong things in the sense very strong. That the primary there were primaries, but they were sort of a joke. No one paid attention to them. I mean, they paid attention to them as sort of PR uh, exercises. Some of them were purely advisory, right? And
1: particularly if with the two thirds rule in the Democratic Party until nineteen thirty six which well, said what which said you you had to have two thirds of the vote to be nominated right, so what you were doing on the first or second ballot, you might have been bound for the first or second ballot after that it was it's up for grabs, and the deals could be made, and in the larger states, you were usually dealing with conventions anyway right and so and, oh, not to mention all the favorite sons. We're almost dealing with favorite sons now, except these favorite sons or daughters can't deliver the delegates from their own states. Right. So, so it was it – that whole process is so
0: much different than what we have now. And while well, I would argue there were definitely problems with the smoke-filled rooms, there were a lot of positives to it as well. When you actually had elites who had an investment in the long-term health of their party – That was a process of filtering out kooks and cranks to a certain extent. That the uh, parties were, were, of course, far more diverse. Right. The Republican Party now has
1: some semblance of diversity in it, of opinion. And the Democrat Party, almost none at this point. But back then, with the South and the big city machines and the Western radicals and miners and whatever, when the Democratic Party and the Republican Party... Where the Republican Party in the East was so, – the geography is so flipped. Right. The Republican Party in the East is conservative and interventionist. And in the Midwest, it can be radical. You know, La Follette comes out of Wisconsin. Johnson comes out of California. And the mountain states, Bora, people like that. So uh, the geography of everything is 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 backwards to modern.
0: Right. I mean, um, it's, what was that – In what was it? The landslide for FDR that was thirty six, not thirty two. Thirty six, right? Was that where the phrase was? It so goes Maine, as goes Maine, goes Vermont. Or that's as- right, because cause they only uh, land and carries only two states. Right, because back then, I mean, for years, Vermonters, flinty yeoman farmer, <laughs> yeah. Vermonters were the the archetypal Republicans. Yes, and now the archetypal Vermonter is some some
1: hippie some, making, hip, some mass hole transplant somewhere. you
0: know refurbishing a barn or something yeah no. So. in 32 hoover carries three groups
1: rich people which is a much smaller group than in 1928 right. and he carries the rural areas or the non-city areas in
0: the northeast right and that's it and he still carries blacks so if i were a senior in high school, and I asked you to explain what's the difference between the Republicans and Democrats in 1920. What would you say it is beyond the personality parts? The tariff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's the damn tariff again. It really, that, that is a, a big difference. Yeah. And, and the Republicans are going to, you know, bring it back in, in 22 and so. Uh, the Fordney-McCumber tariff, and they're going to raise rates. So they're they are very consistent on that. The Democrats are very consistent on it. Um, there's less in 1920, the Democrats are more for the League of Nations, right. The Republicans are really split on that, because you have people like William Howard Taft and Elihu Root uh, and Herbert Hoover who are for the league, and a lot of them are either, well, they're, eventually they 're all going to come around to you should have reservations. You should have some some reservations to these treaties, some clarifications written into the treaty. Um, but then you've got those hard-shell isolationists like Bora and Johnson's, the irreconcilables, who say, no way, Jose. We're not going in. We don't care how many, how many clarifications you have. This is a first-class bad idea and an abrogation of American sovereignty. So the difference is – Are are there as well. The Republican Party is drifting back to conservatism after, you know, flirting with progressivism and and Charles Evans Hughes and Theodore Roosevelt and all that. So you're going to get Harding and Coolidge. But you've still got that that progressive group which is in the Republican Party in 1920. Harding's political genius is his, he, can, he can get all those people to work together in 1920 because they've got very little in common with each other. It's, Harding is it's like, well, he was inadequate for the presidency, and he, now, he knew it, etc., etc. et cetera. I think it's Paul Johnson who says that his skills were very much like Dwight Eisenhower, mm-hmm. where you underestimated him. Right, And then you found out that, that somehow he had schnookered everyone into working together with him. So
0: uh, I want to come back to that in, in just a second. But this is another example of one of these phrases that has a different valence today than it did back then. You said that big chunk of the Republicans were isolationist. I kind of, you know, there's, there's a tendency in a lot of liberal punditry to say that Republicans have this long history of isolationism and well also imperialism under Theodore Roosevelt. Right. But but my point is is that so there were there were two treaties proposed under the uh the Versailles thing and Lodge supported one of them and opposed the 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 14 points one or the League of Nations one. And no, not really. I I'll go back and look. I I think I'm right. Um, Wilson proposed Wilson they've got the treaty. They're working
1: on it in in Paris. Lodge asked for four um, reservations to be written into it. Right. And Wilson actually agrees to it when he's abroad. And the other powers agree to it. But Wilson is, of course, not gracious about it. So he even annoys Lodge even more. Uh, and then he comes back with the treaty. Lodge wants more reservations. He said this was not enough. We want more And there's another group of mild reservationists, a bunch of Republicans and most of the Democrats. And they say we can put these mild reservations in and the treaties are voted on with and without the reservations or the amendments are voted on so that the large reservations are voted down and the mild reservations are voted down and the no reservations are voted down so every it's like this 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 log jam of like you know like some rubik's cube of right. trying to get these these really it's a three-cornered fight wilson with his complete intransigence when he starts the process has the mild reservationists on his side he has most of the country on his side and is just such a jerk about the whole thing that he alienates all the people in the middle. Don't be a jerk and alienate all the people in the middle. That's right. not sound politics.
0: So no, I agree with that. I'll go back and look what I I'm, I'm remembering yeah. about Lodge and but my my larger point is that you know World War 1 is the first real international war we get into. The other stuff in our hemisphere is a little different. I mean, I'm not saying that we didn't go abroad and have wars. We had the Spanish-American War. We did stuff in Central America and all that. But this was a much bigger thing and much more transformative. And Wilson was selling it as transformative. And to when we say isolationist today, it has the baggage of opposing world war, entry into World War II. Yes. And there was no historical memory because it hadn't happened yet. And there is this desire to turn the Republicans of that period into sort of premature pro-Hitlerites because they were opposed to the League of Nations, and I just think it's a complete misapplication of 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 the historical imperatives. I mean, there's a long tradition in this country going back to uh, George Washington's farewell address about no entangling alliances, not hitching our wagon to other people's causes, the League of Nations, as originally proposed by Wilson, I would argue violated a lot of that. If you look at... at well, look look at what they said we were committing
1: ourselves to, to ensuring the self-determination of people, but also the inviolability of borders. So the self-determination of people would mean that the Ireland could go free, but protecting the borders meant that you had to protect the border of the British Empire, right. which included... Ireland and a whole bunch of other places sure. that wanted no part of being part of the British Empire and that particularly with a big Irish vote in Henry Cabot Lodge's Massachusetts right. and a lot of other places was a problem. Right. A you- big problem or you know what's look at what was going on in Italy Versus Yugoslavia, two former allies are fighting over who's going to get this part of the Adriatic right. or whatever.
0: Who who do you side with? Are you going to go to war for that? But like Ron Paul, I remember in 2000, whenever he ran, it seems like he ran like 25 times. But when Ron Paul was running, he would always talk about how this great tradition of Republican isolationism. He would talk about Taft and how Taft— Oh, well, the
1: other—the latter Taft, Robert Taft.
0: Right. He's Taft, up that—well— The Taft who opposed NATO, I'm talking. Yeah, Robert Taft,
1: but not William Howard, who was was an internationalist.
0: That's right. That's right. Big world court fan. And the thing is, but even the, the Robert Taft, you know, Robert Taft opposed NATO in part because he thought it might undermine the UN. And he was in favor of sending troops to Korea. I mean, there are... My point is, is that there's this this notion that the isolation... And look, I'm not an isolationist. I don't know why I'm carrying water for the isolationists. Right. My only point is, is that this cut-and-dried, isolationists are bad, and therefore, Republicans are isolationist, leaves out the historical context that these were legitimate arguments to be made about what America's role abroad is. And what bothers me a lot about the way liberals often write about this stuff is any internationalism they like is right. great. Any internationalism they don't like is just reasonable opposition to foreign wars or, you know, whatever. But the second Republicans oppose some internationalism that that liberals like, it's because they're isolation. Maybe you just think something's not going to work. Right. Or something's just a bad idea, right? Now, (laughs) it may still be on YouTube,
1: probably is. It's Robert Taft being interviewed on probably Meet the Press or something. They have just elected an American supreme commander of NATO. And they ask Taft, don't you think this is great? And he goes, no. <laughs> and it's like, well, why not? And I'm thinking, God, what a jerk this taft is. <laughs> and he says, because basically, the re- this NATO is established to defend Europe. It is largely a European responsibility. And they should be able to carry their own weight on this and not hide totally behind the American military. And he's saying that, that this decision really undercuts their participation, the Europeans, right. and and I think we've seen that forever, where they just have not carried their own weight. No, I think that's right. I mean, I, I do at not. First like... they, at first, they at first, I guess there was a reason.
0: Yeah, the reason is they were completely destroyed, and the Soviet Union was on the march. Yeah, right.
1: But there was something to think about in the long term.
0: No, I, I think that's right. Long long I don't terms like have value. I do not like the way um, Trump talks about. NATO, but there is an argument for NATO skepticism that's very old Irving Crystal's for getting out of NATO. And the, you know, part of part of the problem with NATO is that we ended up subsidizing their welfare states, and they made, we made them weaker, more dissolute countries because, and then the thing I love about the Europeans is they talk about this incredible project where they brought about peace within the EU, and it's all they're doing, and it's this zone of freedom and peace, and it makes me want. it makes the inner my inner Jack Nicholson want to come out, you know, and saying like we provided this incredible uh, security blanket around you, and you're all sitting around in your pillow forts thinking that it is all you're doing. And it's like, no, you know, you need us on was, that wall. It was our nuclear
1: weapons. Right. Um It was Elvis being stationed in Germany.
0: <laughs> okay, so uh let's do some sort of political retroactive political punditry on this. That's the best kind. the The six presidents in 1920 were Theodore
1: Roosevelt, right? Who people who can read Wikipedia will say, but he was dead in 1919. I I know that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I looked it up too, and uh, but if he was not dead, he was going to be the Republican nominee, the old guard. He was the front patch things up. He was the front runner. There was. No second-place guy after him, really. It was all his to uh, win or lose. But um, he was just a very, very sick man in the last year of his life. And people don't know this things. Right. When, uh, you know, you had shot him, you know, you could shoot him. He speaks for 80 minutes afterwards. He goes to the Amazon. He gets sick. You can't kill the guy, but right. you can. Um, also, the death of his son hit him really hard. Really, right? which is uh, which was Bastille Day, 1918. Right. This is a war he had argued for, uh, and he got his war. Right. And not only that son being dead, but two other sons being wounded, uh, both very badly. Particularly Archie, mm-hmm. who spends uh, who is uh, at Armistice Day back home, and as he's so wounded. And it was Kermit who died, though, right? No, no. Kermit is. Uh, uh, it's Quentin who dies. Quentin Kermit oh. serves with the British Army in that war, and then he commits suicide in Alaska in 1943. I did not know that. Yes. Okay. Well, they covered it up for a while. Why? Did, why did he commit suicide? I mean, I know winters there are rough. He was always. He was always the most down and depressed sort of son uh-huh. among them all. Uh, he was also at that stage of very much of an alcoholic. And I think they had sent him up to Alaska to sort of hide him from the war effort. The other two surviving sons were in the war. Uh T R Junior, you know, dies on the beach at Normandy after right. after D Day. Archie, who is the one who was so banged up in World War one, he's rated a hundred percent disabled in in World War One, the way the Veterans administration does this stuff, and then he goes out to the South Pacific and fights in in there and is wounded again and is rated a hundred percent disabled from that war. <laughs> he's the only guy in our history who's been
0: a hundred percent disabled twice in wars wow, in two world wars, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, so – but back to TR. So he was the front-runner. Everyone liked him, and then he inconveniently he just, died. He dies. Right. OK. So that's one. Then two is – and you can take them in order that you – Let's do them in the order that they're elected president at some point or
1: other is, is the infamous Woodrow Wilson. You want to skip over him? We'll get back to him. He's one, right? Uh, okay. He's the incumbent. He's the incumbent. He wanted to run for a third yes. term. The thing is people are mystified by his inclusion in this book because they say, well, he's old. He's sick. He's crippled in the White House. He's had these strokes. He's not running. Well, he's so delusional he thinks he is. He thinks he can get a third term to vindicate himself, to vindicate his League of Nations, his presidency – he instructs the secretary of state, a guy named Bainbridge Colby, to go to San Francisco to the convention to stampede the convention. And the other cabinet members say, are you crazy? <laughs> are you crazy? And that falls apart. But Wilson really wanted it. Right. And then Warren Gamaliel Hardin, who is elected in 1920, a small town newspaper editor. Here's one of the things which is so much different. The media is actually involved in politics, and and chooses up sides. Then, well, how is that different? Well, they do it openly, right? Uh, so that Harding was the chairman or president of the Ohio State Republican Newspapers Association. Uh, so it was very open. And who are some of the other guys who were publishers back then in politics? His opponent, uh, James Middleton Cox. You know, Hurt Cox Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. That's him. He's running a newspaper in Dayton, Ohio, uh, and of course the big guy is William Randolph Hearst. Right. We tend to forget that he was he was a congressman from uh, New York, from Manhattan, and got like two hundred and some votes at the nineteen oh four Democratic convention. So he's Harding is in politics. Uh, he's a senator from Ohio, and he is the proverbial dark horse kind of guy. Nobody's first choice to speak of, but his strategy is to just play nice and not even to be anyone's second or third choice, but to be maybe their fifth or sixth. And this is what the Republicans don't have that two thirds rule. So they very rarely go too long into a convention. The longest they went into was in 1880 with Garfield, 44 votes in 1920 they go 10 which enables Harding to sneak in mm-hmm. and he's a bit of you know he's he's a very conservative guy but on the issues which are before the public he's like ah uh, i don't know right. <laughs> prohibition uh i'm not he says straight out i've never been a prohibitionist but he'll end up voting for it the league of nations he starts out as Kind of a mild reservationist, but even by the time the convention is over, he says, "No, I, I don't want any part of this." And which is a dangerous, kind of a dangerous move, because you've still got the Tafts and the Hoovers and the Roots out there, and you're wondering if they're going to bolt the party. But they won't bolt the party because they're adults. Mm. The 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 um, doesn't the remember trans- what happened in 1912. They certainly do. Uh, and they they want to come back into power, and this is their big chance. But the 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 wild men are the Boras and the Hiram Johnsons. They would bolt, so you kind
0: of have to play play nicer with them. Okay, so there Harding, we're three in, right? Coolidge, Coolidge, Coolidge. Praise be upon
1: him. Pray, yes, <laughs> he's the governor of Massachusetts. He is claim to fame is that during the nineteen nineteen Boston police strike. He – after the 1919 Boston police strike, when it's over, Samuel Gompers, head of the American Federation of Labor, says, why don't you guys be nice and give all these cops their jobs back? The shorter version of Coolidge's response is hell no. Right. Uh, the longer version is there's no right to strike against the public safety any place, anytime, anywhere. And that becomes the catchphrase. And people notice him. Cool Wilson, who never gets to be nonpartisan, praises Coolidge for this. Mm-hmm. He's a favorite son candidate; doesn't do anything to get the nomination. But the 1920 convention is supposed to be the most bossed convention ever. Mm-hmm. The smoke-filled room has passed into into history and common usage. But that convention stampedes literally for Coolidge. He was not the choice of the, of the, of the leadership of the party. He was supposed to be a senator from Wisconsin. And a delegate from um, Oregon stands up on the chair and surprises everyone and says, I want Coolidge. And then the convention stampedes and it is unanimous. It was not unanimous for Harding because even the La Follette people who are like total sore heads wouldn't vote Mm -hmm. for him. But but they would vote for Coolidge. So Coolidge is the vice presidential candidate
0: that year. Because – now, was there a rule that if you came – that – if you got second most votes or something, you became a vice presidential candidate, or is it did, was no, he slotted separate, it separate? Which is a separate thing. Separate. Well, it's
1: a separate vote now. Sure. Only that the president, you know, tells Excellent. you who they want. That's right. Okay. The last guy who didn't tell you who he wanted was Adlai Stevenson in '56, mm-hmm. which led to John F. Kennedy throwing his. Well, he never wore a hat <laughs> into the <laughs> ring. Uh, he threw his hair into the ring, and um, and and Joe Kennedy thought that was stupid. But but uh, so he lost to uh, Estes Kefauver. Talking about primaries not being, you know, uh, important in 1956, Estes Kefauver wins all the primaries. Right, Stevenson never won all any of the primaries in either time out, and he's the twice the nominee of the Democratic Party.
0: Yeah. Well, if you look at the primary totals in 1968 for the Democrats, it's amazing. Um, oh, Humphrey wins.
1: Gee whiz. I don't think he wins any primaries in 68.
0: Yeah. He has like a total of like 98,000 primary votes, which puts him like in seventh place. <laughs> I
1: like think that. the only two primaries he ever won it, were in 60 in the District of Columbia and South Dakota. Yeah.
0: In the District of Columbia, he beat Wayne Morse. The great, late great Wayne Moore. Yes. Um, Okay. So the next, the next on the list is Hoover. Hoover. This is one of the people don't really understand what. There are a lot of things people don't understand about Hoover, but Hoover was. um, Oh, go ahead. Hoover was the great American
1: success story. Horatio Alger, the poor orphan boy, who goes to live with his uncle in Oregon with a dime sewed into his coat pocket. And rises to become, through hard work, pushing carts through gold mines, uh, the great engineer, uh, the genius of organizing gold mines around the world, Australia, China, Siberia, millionaire. and in, Save the starving of Belgium? Well, even before that, in 1914, Americans are trapped in Europe. Right. And they organize it privately, really, in London to get them out and it's hoover who does it doesn't lose a dime in the whole thing uh he may have got my great grandmother out from galicia she was trapped behind the enemy lines there um, but so he's a hero from that. Then he saves all the starving Belgians. Right. Uh, Winston Churchill wants to get him arrested as a traitor <laughs> for sending food <laughs> behind the German lines. Henry Cabot Lodge wants to get him arrested, too. Yeah. And Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt both. This is the one thing they agree on in World War <laughs> One, which is leave Herbert Hoover alone. Right. Then he returns stateside as the food administrator for basically uh, rationing and economizing in food. Uh, One of the side effects of of this is wartime prohibition, Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, save the food for the boys at the front and don't turn it into into beer or booze. So he's a part of he had voted or given money to TR's Progressive Party campaign in 1912 and was a member of Woodrow Wilson's uh, administration, very high up as in. Paris at Versailles during the negotiations of the treaty. Really, really a Wilsonian. And the idea is who will be uh, on the Democratic ticket then? Our next president, number six on the hit parade, Franklin Roosevelt, authorizes someone to see Herbert Hoover and say, hey, Herb and and, and FDR and Hoover knew each other socially. How about a Hoover... From California, Franklin Roosevelt from New York, ticket, right, and that would be you know pretty good. But you know Hoover wasn't born yesterday. He knows it's not a Democratic year. He also knows ba- vaguely that he's not a Democrat, even though he is a progressive. Remember, late in life, he life he writes a book called "The Ordeal of Woodrow Wilson," very pro Wilson book, very yeah. pro Wilson yeah. book. Uh, so Wilson turns him down. But he does win two primaries in 1920, New Hampshire and Michigan, and they're both Democratic primaries. Hoover turns them down. Hoover. Hoover turns them down. You said Wilson turns them down. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry. And which leads us to Franklin Roosevelt, who is assistant secretary of the Navy, fifth cousin of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, married to Theodore Roosevelt's niece, always ambitious, very early on falling on his face in his ambitions— Um, where he wants to run for the Senate in 1914 and gets crushed by Tammany in in that primary, Uh, is always maneuvering uh, within the Wilson administration against his boss in the Navy Department. Um, he's, He's very much a... He's very much a TR-type preparedness guy. Right. What
0: was his boss's name? He was a big—
1: Josephus Daniels. Josephus Daniels, a a big
0: prohibition social gospel, southern progressive.
1: And yet another newspaper editor in politics. Right. uh, The Raleigh News and Observer. So he's angling—there are some mentions of him for president, and then he is put on the ticket for a variety of reasons. Cox sort of likes him. Uh, Cox is an outsider being in Ohio. Roosevelt is the insider uh, who's been all over the lot, like at the convention. He's voting for Mac McAdoo. We have not discussed William Gibbs McAdoo, who was kind of the front runner in 1920 for the Democrats. Woodrow Wilson's uh, son-in-law and secretary of the Treasury. He was secretary of the Treasury before he was the son-in-law, so it's not a question of nepotism.
0: And quite, quite the racist, right? I mean, was well, it part of the Klan bake stuff in 2016 Well,
1: yes, yeah. Well, I don't know if he was quite the racist, but but because if if you're the 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 big guy running against Al Smith, you're going to get all their votes.
0: Yeah, okay, fair. And enough.
1: he's not about, and he's not about to turn them away. Right, right. So by that criteria, yes, yes. Uh, he's also a big prohibitionist. So that's that's, right. that's, that's, a, that's a reason. So many of the people around Wilson in his administration are Southerners. This is the return. You know, Wilson, of course, is uh, born in Virginia, lives in Georgia, lives in North Carolina, South Carolina before he moves up north to Princeton. His two wives are Southerners, his son-in-law and secretary of treasury. He's from Tennessee, McAdoo uh burleson and gregory uh are from texas the big advisor the big um secretive uh shadowy advisor colonel house is also a texan you take a look at who surrounds him when he's sick and his doctor is carrie grayson the admiral is a virginian the the controversy when he appoints brandeis secretary of state well it's like he's appointing a jew He's appointing a Jew from Kentucky. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> I did not know that Brandeis was from Kentucky. Yes. And he never lost his accent, I guess.
0: Oh, wow. I, 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 personally, I have a soft spot in my heart for Jews with Southern accents. Oh, I don't know why,
1: okay. I All don't right. And who's running the country's industry during
0: World War I? Bernard Baruch from right. South Carolina. Right. Right. No, I knew he was from Southern. Yeah. Carolina. So, yeah. So this is one of these things that a lot of people don't remember is that Franklin Roosevelt was not only a Wilson administration retread, Right, because he had, he was a prominent member of the. I think he learned a lot from Wilson's mistakes. I, I that's probably true, but he was also the vice presidential candidate in 1920. He was. You know? He gets he, he, Calvin Coolidge beats uh, beats him. Yeah. All right. All right so before we, because I want to come back. Wilson, to... Listen.
1: What is what is important about uh, FDR running that year is um, he makes his peace with Tammany, and he at one point nominates.
0: Tammany being the machine politics right, that runs from New, York. New York
1: City from Manhattan, and he makes a seconding address for Al Smith. Al Smith is Who's the his, Catholic. He's the Catholic governor of New York, and he gets to do it again in 1924 to make the real address. He hobbles up. On crutches at Madison Square Garden, and just everyone just admires his courage in that. That's when he comes back through Smith, and then Smith taps him to be governor of New York in 1928. He barely wins there, okay? Right. Smith kind of smooths the way all the way for Roosevelt. Right. And it starts then. When Roosevelt is running in 1932, or after he, he wins— the fellow who makes the proposition to Hoover, who was Brandeis' nephew, a guy named Louis Well, uh, says, do you remember uh, that run for vice president? Well, of course, <laughs> you know, and and, and T- FDR says, I kept a card file of everyone I met when I was running for vice president, and that was the basis
0: of putting together my campaign for 32. <laughs> That's interesting. So before we now turn to Woodrow Wilson... Just very quickly, this is a subject that is a great controversy among a handful of people who care about this kind of thing, and I happen to be one of them. Was Hoover a conservative? After a while. Right. He was... People change. You know, a lot of the
1: progressives, the Democratic progressives turned into the early critics of the New Deal. Yeah, Newton D. Baker was – not into it for example. He, yeah. Newton D Baker was secretary of war under Woodrow Wilson. Newton D B- well, wasn't Newton D
0: Baker from West Virginia?
1: Yes, but his father fought for the confederates. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's true. I and mean, it's interesting if you go back and you look, there were a lot of who was the fixer for FDR, who was the postmaster general for a while and head of Barley? Yeah, he turned into kind of a conservative critic of parts of the New Deal at the end. Yeah, um, I mean, he never stopped being a Democrat, but I think he actually even wrote something for National Review. Really, I at think, the end? Yeah, I, I have to go back and look. That may be too late,
1: but him, he and Herbert Hoover lived in the in at the Waldorf. <laughs> Everyone lived in the Waldorf Astoria Towers. MacArthur, Madame Chiang Kai Shek. That's right. That's right. And Trotsky could have lived at the Waldorf <laughs> Towers if only. <laughs>
0: But no this, the thing about Hoover is is that there's this weird you know, and and Margaret Hoover his granddaughter yeah. is a big defender maybe of great. his I'm sorry
1: maybe great-granddaughter Maybe great-granddaughter Time marches yeah. on.
0: Uh is a fairly passionate defender of his conservatism and um and my friend George Nash is a wrote a book about George is a great guy. George is a fantastic guy. I will not say I'm, that, not, I'm not accusing you of anything. Yeah, and I will not say an ill word about George Nash. I, I, I love Nash. and um, Everyone loves Nash. But uh, he'll make the case, a pretty powerful case that Hoover was a conservative. But, and then so will people like Robert Reich and all these liberals will make the case that he was a real conservative. And one of the things, there are a couple data points. One is his role in World War I and the progressive era He was a progressive. I mean, I don't think you can really dispute that, right? And then, two, this notion that he was this strict sort of libertarian guy who met the stock market crash and the depression with a sort of heartless, let's not do anything, it'll just work itself out approach is just not true. But FDR peddled that because he wanted to get the create a political momentum for really doing something. So he pretended that Hoover didn't do anything. And if you look at the expenditures by the federal government under Hoover, they're enormous.
1: And criticized heavily by the Democrats.
0: Right. As
1: not enough, right? No. as 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 there's too much of a deficit. Oh sure. Yeah. Okay. The the 1932 platform written by A. Mitchell Palmer says, you know, we're going to cut government expenditures by 25 percent. We're going to cut these wasteful bureaus and departments. There are two phases to Hoover's uh, reaction to the depression. The first is being Hoover spent a lot of his adult life abroad in financial circles, gold people in London and stuff. Um, in 1920, like people who were posted his nomination on the Republican Party said, oh, "I'll never vote for an Englishman." So he's focusing on stuff abroad. As a cause of the depression. And remember the failures of the banks in Germany right. and Austria and gold flow and all that stuff. So he's concentrating on that as a way to deal with the depression for the first couple of years or two. And then only after maybe the – well, it would have to be a while, like the last year, then he ramps stuff up with the Reconstruction Finance Authority or whatever it is, corporation. Right. And things like that, and and public works projects, et cetera, et cetera, where I don't th- I don't know if it's Tugwell or Mole or Rexford Tugwell or, or Raymond Moley,
0: two they, major brain trusters, in
1: right, the FDR uh, administration says that Hoover's plan laid the basis for what was going to come with FDR. Right. No, I think there's a lot of truth to that, and that and, gets me to my one of my arguments. Except he's so uninspiring. Right. That he, you know, uh, they said if you planted a ro- you put a rose in his hand, it would wilt. <laughs> but, but so, Hoover wants to close the banks. FDR closes the banks. What's the difference? Hoover says it's going to be a moratorium, and he's waiting for government authority to do it. And Roosevelt just says, ah, we'll do it. You know, right. after lying to Hoover about what happened to be done. But what does Roosevelt say? He doesn't call it a moratorium. It's a bank holiday. Right. <laughs> it's a holiday where you can't get your money, but take the day off.
0: Right. No, I, I, I mean, no disputing the FDR was a better politician. That's another. Just as a side note, that's one of the other sort of ideological landmark things that is a little recognizable today, but was a much had a much different feel to it back then. Was the role of technocrats. Right. The progressives said that. Experts. 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 Experts will set
1: the tariffs.
0: Right. Disinterestedness and all of that stuff. Wilson is always talking about how
1: people must get above their interests and the United States and particularly him. Right. But every other any person who disagrees with him is 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 their it's
0: their own rotten interests and they must rise above them to. Agree with me. That's right. That's right. When they, and so, when after when when Hoover runs in twenty eight, one of his slogans is, "Would you rather have an engineer or a politician?" Because back then, engineering was seen as this not, t- purely scientific, non interested, disinterested, technocratic kind of thing. And it turns out that first of all, that doesn't work in politics, and second of all, engineers don't, tend not to be great politicians. And Hoover Jimmy you know.
1: Carter, right,
0: right. So, but but that's a that that is a strain that comes back in and out of politics for a long time and JFK gives this famous press conference and then he says it again at a thing at a speech at Yale where he says you know the problems with capital the issues with capitalism and the market economy are so complex now that we can't really have them debated democratically anymore it has to be experts that are running everything and this is one of the things in american culture that we do is that we every now and then we just think oh a businessman or an engineer or a nuclear engineer <laughs> um someone from outside of politics who can make a business run like Ron Johnson is a classic sort of Republican yeah. who, who says, look, I know how to run a business. I'll come to Washington. and We'll run it like a business. It it's out, a different business. It's a completely different enterprise. Right. I mean, I don't want to get all Michael Oakeshott here, but it's a completely different way of, form, of, of doing things. I've been an elected official. Right. <laughs> I've been an alderman, damn it. <laughs> OK, so uh, we'll take a break. here,
1: And so we leave you on a cliffhanger. Will Jonah and David defeat the dreaded Woodrow Wilson? Will they manage to stay on track during the episode? Tune in next episode to find out.
0: Sorry to do this in front of the guest. Uh-huh. If you have an unfortunate tendency to start talking into the side of the mic uh-huh. as the episode goes on. Okay. So can you try not to do that? Because it requires me to adjust the audio after the fact. Okay. It's, it's a fair request. Yeah. It's a fair request. and and in... Sorry to embarrass you in front
1: of your friends. It's...